If you have your Bibles, uh, open them to Matthew chapter 6. And then open them also to Luke chapter 11. Um, We'll be looking at several passages today. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount and we've seen that there's a shift from chapter 5 to chapter 6 from what we are to do to how we are to do what we are supposed to do. At the beginning of chapter 6, we've been looking at this, Jesus deals with what the Jews consider to be the three acts of piety, uh, giving to those who are in need, praying and fasting. And as we've seen and we'll continue to see, the point, uh, the question of this section is, who is your audience? You know, who are you doing this for? And in dealing with this question, Jesus tells us about our Father in heaven. This is the primary focus of the Sermon on the Mount. Even when Jesus is telling us and teaching us what we are supposed to do and how we're supposed to do what we do, he's telling us about our Father in heaven. And if we're not careful, our focus will end up on us rather than on God the Father. And I think that's our fault. That's not Jesus' fault. Um, We're just hearing what he says with ourselves in mind rather than thinking of God. As we begin, we're going to review a bit, but also look uh, and look at a couple of passages. I would remind you that Jesus was a traveling teacher. And I I think I want to blame TV or movies about Jesus because somehow they give us the impression that Jesus said something once and that was it. When in fact... I have no problem seeing Jesus saying the same thing over and over again as he traveled from town to town. Um, so on different occasions, he would say the same thing or a variation of it, depending on the context, and he would adapt it each time. So if you look at Luke chapter 11, we'll look at this and then we'll come back to Matthew 6 in a bit. At the beginning of the chapter... One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. So you'll notice that this is the Lord's prayer, a different version of it. Um, The version we're looking at is in the Sermon on the Mount. It's in the context of a much larger sermon. And here it is in answer to the question, how are we to pray? Um, But in both cases, I would argue, the point isn't so much about us, but about our Father in heaven to whom we are praying. So let's keep reading here in Luke 11. Then Jesus said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give the him the bread because he is a friend, yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Now, the story seems pretty uh, straightforward. Uh, it's midnight, which 
that time was late. I mean, if you're a night owl, that doesn't seem very late. But uh, all the lights are out and suddenly there's someone knocking at the door. And he says, listen, someone has shown up. It's, it was really unusual to have someone traveling at night, but he's shown up and I have nothing to set before him. And by the way, the nothing there, I don't think means there's no food in the cupboard. It's, you know, bread was used as the fork and spoon. That's what you dipped with. And if you have stale bread or day-old bread, that's not something you want to put before the guests. So you say to your neighbor, I know you have some fresh bread because everyone used the same communal oven. Can you loan me three loaves so I can give uh, some food to my guest who's showing up? Jesus basically asked his disciples, can you imagine someone in that situation saying no? That the person would say, listen, the door's already locked, the kids are in bed with me, and I can't get up, I can't get out of bed and give you anything. But by the way, in that day, the peasant homes usually had just one big room, and there was an elevated platform that was the bed, and everybody slept there. And so this man is in bed with all his kids, and he doesn't want to get up, wake up anyone. Of course, they've probably already awakened or been woken up by the man knocking on the door. Jesus basically asked his disciples, can you imagine someone saying, no, I'm not going to loan you any bread? And the answer is, of course not. Uh, Verse number eight, I think, oftentimes is uh, confusing because of the different translations. Jesus is not saying because the man keeps knocking on the door, the guy's like, okay, okay, I'll give you some bread. Just we want to go back to sleep. It isn't that at all. It is if you are a neighbor And if you are a man of character, then in fact, you will give bread to your neighbor. Because of your character, fresh bread comes out the door. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is God our Father is not someone who needs to be harassed into doing what you ask. He is in fact like the neighbor. See, the issue here is to whom are we praying? I've said this before, everybody prays. Prayer is not the issue in many ways. It is, to whom are you praying? And Jesus says we are to pray to our Father in heaven, who is the sleeping neighbor in this parable, but he is willing, in spite of whatever barriers there might be, to get up and share with the one who is in need. So when you think of God the Father, is he someone who can't be bothered? Is he like the neighbor? It's midnight. He's already in bed with the kids. Please don't bother me. Go away. Is he someone who comes up with excuses not to help you? Or is he someone like the neighbor who will in fact get out of bed in the middle of the night and share what he has with you? He is a God of holiness. He is a God of character. And like the neighbor here, he will share what he has. See, what Jesus is trying to convey, and I think we miss it time after time after time, is that prayer may be made confidently. We may go to God with confidence, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. It is God's character rather than our performance. That's what, you know, that's what the pagans do. They keep repeating and repeating and repeating and thinking they can wear the gods down. No, it is because of his character, who he is. He will attend to our needs. There's another parable in this vein that I want us to look at, and it's in Luke chapter 18. So if you'd look there, a few pages over, Luke chapter 18.
And again, Jesus is talking about prayer. Let's begin at verse number one. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For at some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? What is the point of this parable? Well, it would seem clear that it's in the first verse, that Jesus is teaching them that always to pray and not give up. So it would seem that this is a parable about persisting in prayer. Just keep on, don't ever give up. Well, let's stop and think a minute. What is the purpose of a parable, these stories that Jesus told? It was, in fact, to change people's behavior and to create disciples. The desire was that people would listen to what he had to say, and this would, in fact, change their behavior, and they would become like Jesus. So he tells them about God, he tells them about God's kingdom, and he tells them about what God is seeking to do on the earth. If we're not careful, we will think that these stories are about the listeners, about us, when in fact it's about God. Jesus came to tell us about God. We know about ourselves. He comes to tell us about God. And when it comes to the matter of prayer, what inspires prayer? Why, in fact, should we pray? How we answer this question, in fact, will reveal our instincts and will reveal, I think, our relationship to God. When we pray, what is the most important thing? I'll give you two choices. Is it what you're praying for or praying about? Or is it God's character? What is more important? And I think Jesus tells these parables, we hear them and we think, well, it's about getting your prayer request. Don't give up, don't give up. Be like this widow and just sort of harass the judge this wicked judge who finally says, listen, you know, she's going to wear me out. I'll just give her what she wants. Or is it about the character of God? See, what we find in this parable is that God is not like the unjust judge. God, in fact, will bring justice. And that's the, main, the second point of this. And that is that God will bring justice for his people. He's already begun, and we see this in the resurrection, but it, it will continue until Jesus returns. So when we pray, our focus, our faith must be in who God is, not in getting what we want. See, if God isn't who he says he is, then why should we pray? If he cannot be trusted, uh, then why should we pray? I'm reminded of uh, a Bob Dylan song, speaking of God, it says, you think he's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. There, it's the prayer request that is primary and God becomes like a, a, this big giant vending machine. It is God's character that he is holy and he is our father and he loves us. So with that in mind, let's go back to Matthew chapter 6, which is what we've been looking at the past few weeks. 
And Jesus here gives what we call the Lord's Prayer. But again, remember the context is he's giving a sermon. He's telling them about what the kingdom of heaven is like. So beginning in verse number nine, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. As Jesus begins to teach us how to pray, he starts with who we are praying to, our Father in heaven. We looked at this last week. I don't want to repeat all that I said last week, but I will mention several things. First of all, God the Father is the Father because there is the Son. God the Son. If there is no Son, if there is no child, then there can be no Father. Secondly, the word that Jesus uses for Father is Abba. It is an everyday word. Every family has its own version of it. It's like Papa or Dad or Daddy. Pop. Uh, It is a very intimate term. It's something within the circle of the family. This is how children refer to their dad. What is our Father like? We're praying to our Father in heaven, but what is, in fact, our Father like? Well, as the expression goes, like father, like son. If you want to know what God the Father is like, then you need to look at God the Son, and that's Jesus. So when we read the Gospels, we read about Jesus of Nazareth, that's what God the Father is like. Now, as I mentioned, Jesus uses the word Abba, and for some people this might seem too casual. It might become presumptuous that you go into God's presence with a lack of reverence. And that's why Jesus doesn't say here, just our Father, but our Father in heaven. We are to come to the Father like children. We say, Abba, we trust you, our Father, to do what is best. And yet at the same time, we recognize this distance. That when we pray to him, we recognize that in fact he is transcendent. We are his children not by right, Uh, Not by birth, not by nature or creation, but by his grace, by his adoption. But let's digress a bit. How did this happen? How did we become the children of God? How is it that we can now call God our Father? Well, I wasn't born into this world as a child of God, and neither were you. We were born into this as part of the human race, a race that opposes God. We are the children of Adam. By nature, this sounds harsh, by nature we hate God. We are the enemies of God. We want to do what we want to do. We don't care what he says. But one day in each of our lives, through a variety of circumstances and events, it's different in everyone's life, God the Father conquered me. How did he do that? He allowed me to see the truth of who he is and the truth of who I am. That he is holy and I am a sinner. And apart from his grace, we can't be reconciled. We will, we will be eternally enemies. He didn't destroy me. Conquer sort of con- uh, conjures that up. But instead he adopted me. And I, who used to be his enemy, am now his adopted son. And this is possible because God the Son, the Lord Jesus, came and rescued me. 
And because of all of that, I can now call him Father. Now when we call him our Father, we acknowledge that there are other sons and daughters. I'm not the only son that God has. But when I call him my Father in heaven, I recognize that there's a distance between us. And it isn't a, a geographical distance that heaven is somewhere out there, but it is, I think, a distance of difference that God is transcendent. He is perfect. He is infinite. And I am none of those things. I also acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. Having established that, the relationship between the one praying and the one to whom he or she is praying, Jesus now continues the prayer. It has been argued that the prayer is made up of five parts. First of all, the address, our Father in heaven. The second part is the ascription, we'll look at in a minute, that is, hallowed be your name. Then we have three general petitions, prayer requests if you wish, and then four specific petitions, and then finally, a doxology. The critical issue here, though, is who is it we're praying to? And that's why I've spent more time on that than I will on the other issues. Um, as I said, everybody prays, but not everyone's praying to God. They may think that they are, but if they do not acknowledge who he is and his character, um, then no, they're not praying to God. Before the petitions, after the address, is an inscription, and it is, Hallowed be your name. Most people who know this word hallowed, they know it from the Lord's Prayer, because this isn't something that we use in everyday language. It's not a common word today. The closest we come to hallowed is tomorrow, Halloween, which is actually a contraction of Hallow Eve, which come, be, comes before All Saints Day. Um, what does hallow mean? It means to make holy or to honor as holy. Yes, your name is holy. The phrase, hallowed be your name, is an acknowledgement of God's character. That at the beginning of our prayer, we say, you are our Father, and you can be trusted. You are holy. You are of good character. And again, this is the key to prayer. Because if you don't trust God, it's not about the quality of your prayer request, or how many times you pray, or you know whatever you do when you're praying, on your knees, flagellating, whatever. No. It is his character. Can he be trusted? And here we see, hallowed be your name. He is someone who can be trusted. Now, we'll get into a bit of grammar here. It's important not only for the ascription, but for the, for the petitions. How are we to take this? When Jesus says, hallowed be your name. In, in grammar, there are three moods, if you wish. There is the indicative, there is the subjunctive, there is the imperative. The indicative is a statement of fact. So is Jesus saying, your name is holy? That's indicative. Or is it the subjunctive? Is it a, a statement of desire or wish? If only your name were holy, or may your name be holy. The third is the imperative or command. Make your name holy. Make it hallowed. I think we usually speak of these words either as a statement or as a wish. We wish that God's name was treated with more reverence or we're simply stating a fact that God's name is hallowed. The reality is it is none of those. It is the imperative. It is a command. 
question is, who are we to make this command or demand, and of whom are we making this? It might help you to know, by the way, except for one of the petitions, they're all in the imperative. They're all commands. Now, that's, that's rather shocking, isn't it? Because who are we to command our Father in Heaven, the transcendent God? And yet, I would argue that many prayers today are precisely that and not in the right way. We'll come to that in a moment. The general petitions, there are three of them here. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are in the imperative. As I said, the question is, who are we to command God? How dare we say to God, your kingdom come? I'm fascinated by this question because most people are in fact in the imperative mood in their prayers. Um, that oftentimes prayers seem to be merely a list of demands, or if you wish, commands. I think what most people want to know is, and I think if people would ask me about prayers, Damon, how do I get God to give me what I want? Which is not what prayer is about. We need to ask ourselves, what is prayer? It's part of a conversation. And a conversation is a dialogue. There are two parties involved. Now the question is, who began the conversation? When we pray, are we initiating a conversation? If, in fact, we think that's the case, then yeah, um, this is rather presumptive for us to command God to do something. But what if, in fact, God began the conversation? And prayer is a response to God. It doesn't begin with us. We are responding. God has spoken, and so we pray back to him as a form of response. If that's the case, if he began the conversation, um, how do we even know about his kingdom? How do we even know about his will being done? It began with him. So he tells us, that the kingdom is coming, and we respond in prayer and say, your kingdom come, make it happen. His will is going to be done, he tells us, and we say back in prayer to him, make your will happen on earth as in heaven. Jesus has a lot to say about the kingdom. As Mark tells us, Jesus began his ministry with the declaration the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the good news. God's kingdom. Um, the Old Testament doesn't say much about the kingdom of God, but the thinking is always there. It's one reason why God was so upset and offended when Israel said, we want a king. And God's like, I'm your king. Why do you need a king? The idea that God rules and that this is his realm is something we find throughout the, New, the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he proclaims, listen, something you people have forgotten, the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of heaven where God rules. There is an aspect in which it began with Jesus and it is not yet finished. When Jesus returns, it will come, it will come to fruition. But the kingdom of heaven has begun. It has come. There are two things that are tied to the coming of the kingdom. The first is the saving of God's kingdom. How can you have a kingdom without subjects, without citizens? 
So if you have the kingdom of heaven coming, but no one belongs to it, that makes no sense. God rescues people. He conquers them, if you wish, and brings them and puts them into his kingdom. And as a result, you have those who are in the kingdom of God and those that are outside. Inside you find salvation and outside you find judgment. So the first general petition is for his kingdom to come and then for his will to be done. And you will notice that it is on earth as it is in heaven. Again, I'll remind you, this is not a wish. This isn't a statement of fact. This is a command. It is a a clear declaration that what God wants to happen will, in fact, happen. Do you know the verse? This is from Isaiah 55. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and the purpose for which I sent it. It expresses wonderfully what Jesus is saying here in this prayer, that God's will is infallible and in fact will happen. It cannot be subverted. And God tells us this, and so in prayer we respond to him by saying, make your will happen here on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer begins with God, not with us. And therefore we can say to him, your kingdom come, your will be done. It is a response. It's a response to the good news of the kingdom of God. It's also a recognition here, by the way, that there's a radical distinction between earth and heaven. That things that are happening here, we would certainly agree this is not heaven. Things are not going the way I think we would like them to go. But there's a recognition that though sin has entered into the world, God is changing the world and he is doing so in part through us. I don't know if you remember, but one of the hymns we sang earlier, at the end it said, and heaven and earth be one. That's what Jesus is saying. We are to pray that God's will, the command that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus brought the kingdom. The kingdom is spreading all over the planet, has continued to do so for 2,000 years, and will until he returns. It's not because we are nice people. It is not because we are even mature people or perfect people. It is because God is holy and he is our father. The Lord willing, next Sunday we will finish up on the Lord's Prayer. We will look at the four specific petitions in the doxology. I think what I want you to see clearly today are two things. First of all, is that prayer is to God our Father. Oftentimes when there's a tragedy or some event and bow your heads or let's have a moment of silence. That's fine, be silent. Let's, or when people say, I'll pray for you, but are they talking about praying to God our Father? God our Father is transcendent. He is not like a neighbor who's woken in the middle of the night and says, nah, don't bother me, I'm in bed with the kids. Not at all. And he's not like a wicked judge who doesn't care about what is right or wrong. 
If we want to know what God the Father is like, look at Jesus. And when we pray, that should be the primary focus of our prayers. Who God is. Everything else is secondary. Our prayer request. And we come to him with our prayer request. Who else are we going to go to? To false gods? To idols? No. We go to God. But we begin with, and this has to be central, that God is our Father. And he can be trusted. He can be trusted. And the second thing that I want you to remember is that prayer is more about God than us. I think we get this wrong all the time. We think it's about us. It's about getting what we want. So prayer is sort of a a list of things that we want. In our worship, we ask people to speak of things they want remembered in prayer. It's entirely appropriate. And we do so in the context of worship. It's about God. It's not about us. It's easy to forget this, particularly when things get dark, when they get difficult, when you're freaking out, you don't know what to do, and you cry out to God in prayer. Um, Yeah, it's easy to to realize, or we forget, it's not about me. But God loves us. We are his children. He cares for us. So it isn't as though when we go to prayer, oh, it's all about you, it's all about you, don't worry about me. No, not at all. It's about God who is a father who loves us and who does what is best for us. God began the conversation and as his children, we're talking back. We're speaking to him and we say, our father in heaven. Let's pray together. Our Father, prayer is a wonderful thing, a wonderful gift, but I fear something that we so easily abuse. We become the center of our prayers, our needs, our desires. And when we don't get what we want, then we begin to think very dark thoughts about you and wonder why aren't you doing what we ask instead of recognizing that prayer is about you. You began a conversation and now we're speaking back in prayer. And you're our Father. You love us. You've cared for us every moment of our lives. You take care of us. You watch over us. And even in dark and difficult times, when it seems that you're not there, you are in fact there. So may we, as individuals, as a congregation, come to see that prayer is to you, our Father. And it is primarily about you and not us. I ask that in each life we would not be hearers only, just heard another sermon about prayer, but it would in fact affect the way that we pray. The disciples asked, teach us to pray. And Jesus, in fact, has taught us. And he has taught us all about you. May your spirit work in our lives in the coming days. We thank you again for the rain. 
we ask for safety as each one of us goes to our homes. Keep us through the coming days and this week. We pray for Gwen as she returns to work. You would give her strength and for Titus and the G's that you would recover their health. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for caring for us. On this day, the first day of a new week, thank you for calling us together to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.